One can imagine the good mood in the car in the homes when that song plays Burnout. Sipo Hot Sticks Mabusa, it's a very retro song. It takes many people many years back. And this is the viewpoint. We try to do things differently here as we always do on a Tuesday. Everybody at once. It's the hashtag Tuesday Takeover. And our guest this evening is Dr. Ivor Chipkin, Director of the New South Institute, formerly GAAP GAP. Of course, being a Tuesday, you're not going to hear much of me for much longer because our guest is going to be taking over and you're, as you always do with every other guest, given the love and support that you ordinarily would here on SAFM, The Viewpoint. Phineas is in the background, as is Lesejo, as well as in Tabiseng. Tabiseng is such a fader. She had a birthday on Sunday. She was supposed to bring cake yesterday and apparently she's forgotten even today still. So I'm less inclined to be nice to her because she was supposed to bring us rainbow cake and she hasn't. Thank goodness Iva has bought us ice cream. Unless Lesejo was lying to me yesterday. Did you bring the ice cream, Iva? Oh, absolutely. Lots of it. Chocolate. Uh, Seriously? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, good man. Well done. Okay, well, Tabi Singh's not getting any of that. 86 2032 that's the number to dial. 0614-104-107, that's the WhatsApp facility. Drop us a voice note, please. Or drop us a text message as we engage Dr. Ivor Chipkin, whose show it is, until the top of the hour. Now, he is a scholar of government and public policy in South Africa and internationally. He has held senior positions in the field and was involved in key moments of policy development in the transition from apartheid. He received his PhD in finance in France at the Ecole Normale, that university. Um, You will have to pronounce that again. It's... I know the French is not a, French language is not pronounced as you read it, but nonetheless, uh, you are an Oppenheimer Fellow at St. Anthony's College in Oxford, so that's quite a high accolade, in fact. Further, he has contributed to the understanding of corruption in the global south and has deep practical experience in devising measures to combat it. He was one of the main authors of The Betrayal of the Promise Report, the first major study of state capture in South Africa. Further, he has recently developed new approaches to monitoring and forecasting organizational capacity, bridging social science and big data analysis in the policy field. He was a founding member and director of the PARI, that is the Public Affairs Research Institute at Witwatersrand and UCT before that. He is the author of the book, Do South Africans Exist and Shadow State? Well, he's plenty to offer particularly in public administration as the director of the New South Institution. Ivor, good evening. Welcome to SAFM. Thank you for joining us. Good evening. It's a a great pleasure. It's a little nerve-wracking, but but a very exciting opportunity. Thank you for having me. I'll give you two minutes and you'll be more than fine, not just fine. Interestingly, as we were talking before we got on air, you were just giving me a background as to your life in public administration and the many great things you have seen and the not so great things you have seen in the evolution as our democracy has taken shape. Do you just want to repeat what you were saying to me and continue to where you might not have had an opportunity to speak? I mean, we do have all of five minutes basically to introduce you to the listenership and get a sense as to who you are. And more importantly, you get a sense as to who the listeners are so that you can have a nice debate and conversation among each other until the top of the hour. Um, yeah, I think it's sort of the formative moment uh, for me was the, was the transition. I was a, I was a lighty. I was, uh, I think, uh, 17 or 18 at the time of the transition. I had a big, uh, one of the great breakthroughs or 
key moments of my life was to work for Plan Act, which was this, uh, today it's an NGO, at the time it was a kind of political organization uh, bringing together intellectuals, academics, uh, activists, uh, especially in the struggle around local government. Uh, enormous, enormous optimism, uh, extraordinary skills, intelligence, uh, commitment, uh, courage, uh, Tremendous excitement in those days. Uh, it would, you know, Planet was also in Rocky Street, which was this uh, sort of site of uh, fantastic jolling, and it was a sense of that you know South Africa was full of such such extraordinary promise. Uh, I don't think it was a time of naivety. I think there was tremendous idealism, and I think it was a well-founded idealism. And I think I come out of that. I think what we were talking about was so, which is so interesting, is I then went into in the sort of in my twenties became very involved in the sort of the transition of local government and was one of the people that helped write the white paper on local government, which we can arguably discuss as a complete complete uh, failure. I'm not so sure that the white paper was a failure. Some of the principles of underdevelopmental local government were a failure. But nonetheless, local government hasn't turned out very, hasn't turned out very well, certainly not as, what, as, as we expected. But I was thinking in terms of the question you asked me before we started. I mean, I think there was a lot of idealism in, in, in that design. And in particular, the sense was, if you recall the 1980s, the 1980s was this massive, massive revolt against apartheid in South Africa, but it was largely an urban revolt. It was uh, driven from uh, the cities, uh, big cities, Soweto, uh, uh, Port Elizabeth uh, in those days, uh, East London. These, you know, these were areas of huge urban revolt, and there was a strong sense from people in the UDF and 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 and, and others as well that the real democratic energy was in the cities, was in local government, was in communities, uh, was in small towns. Uh, that was where real democratic energy ferment was in South Africa. And therefore, if we designed a local government system which respected the autonomy of those of, of towns and, and communities and we gave them resources, there was a sense that there would be tremendous opportunities for real democratic uh, governance at, the, at that level. And I think that was a lot, of the, a lot of the excitement around local government at the time of the transition. So in retrospect, some of these ideas have panned out really, really badly, um, but they came from a sense of, 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 of a reading of the transition, which I think was an important one and, a, and an accurate one. That's an interesting point, and I, and I wonder what extent the challenges of now might have been then mitigated against by perhaps what Schenge was advancing and advocating for, a federal system, where, for instance, then you don't have the central government that controls everything such that if there are the kinds of failures we have seen from t time to time at a central government level, how it redounds to even the municipalities, where then the score might be that the municipalities are not functioning which is actually in times or at times an indication of the center not holding. Would there be merit in perhaps revisiting a federal government system? I know the Western Cape would appreciate that, the DA that is. Look, it's, it's, it's largely what we have. Uh, but, I, but there are a lot of interesting ironies there. And I mean, we're going to be having uh, Professor Nur Niftokhadin, one of South Africa's great historians, uh, and we can ask him, ask him some of these questions, especially as it relates to, to the ANC. Um, the, if you recall the time of the transition, the ANC didn't really want the federal structure. Um, it wanted a strong national government, and it wanted strong local government. It didn't want this uh, tier of, of, of provincial governments. This is a, an outcome of, 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 of the transition, of the, of the negotiated settlement. 
I can't remember exactly, um, if you recall during the apartheid period, of course, there were no provincial governments, there were provincial administrations. These were not elected authorities, these were administrative roles. Um, and I think the ANC would have preferred something like that. Instead, we got three, three tiers of government. But the ANC's original conception was strong national government and uh, strong, uh, strong autonomous democratic local governments. Uh, of course, many of us were very uh, committed to that idea in, during the transition, and it's, it's, not, it's not what we ended up with. But... Um, uh, it's certainly local government has not been performing really, really well, even the big metros, and we can discuss why perhaps. Strangely enough, some of the local provincial governments have been performing better than others, especially uh, in those areas run by the DA. I mean, there's just no doubt that the, uh, the, the Western Cape um, looks like it's being run better than other parts of the country. Certain parts of the Western Cape, not the Western Cape, certain parts of the Western Cape. Sure, sure. I mean, there's a in the interesting legacies there. I mean, when you look at... Big time. I mean, the, the big one, of course, which we don't talk about enough in South Africa, and that is the legacy of the homeland system and the Bantustans. So if you That's look at a the, week's worth of discussion. Oh, ah, this, is, this is the sort of heart. You're now getting into the heart of, of a lot of the work that I'm doing is looking at those histories, uh, looking at and those relationships. The and there are some situation. deep and vested interests there. Wow. And if you move towards the east, you can imagine. Wow, wow. And I think, so. I mean... What we when when we were doing work in Limpopo, for example, what we found, and I think you'll see it in 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 in, uh, in the Eastern Cape dramatically in Limpopo, is that what you have is a kind of division of institutions according to homeland old homeland administration. So those homeland histories are very much alive in the Eastern Cape. So the difference, is so so relative to the rest of the country, it's uh, Gauteng and the Western Cape don't have homeland histories. There are no former homelands in those territories, and it's probably and it's not surprising, therefore, that compared to the others, they're more they're more capable administrations, because they just simply did not inherit that kind of extraordinary fighting and contestation and complexity which all the other infrastructure provincial governments backlog. Unbelievable. Just Okay, well, you've certainly, hopefully, enlivened the many yeah, yeah, I can see that it's wound you up. It yeah. Properly, unfortunately, yeah, I have yeah. to yield the platform. No, you should stick around. <laughs> <We> can... <laughs> no, I can't do that. Let's respect the day. Let's respect it's a Tuesday, hashtag Tuesday Takeover. Ivor Chipkin, you've heard him. He's the director of the New South Institute. That, in my thinking and planning, was supposed to be the first question, but I just could not resist engaging him at the level at which he and I already were in our previous conversation. So, without... Further ado, then, let's take a short ad break. After the break, it will be Ivor Chipkin until the top of the hour. Please show him love and support. Call in 86 2032 Drop us a WhatsApp voice note or text 0614-104-107. Ivor, forget about me. I'm going to catch up on Croatia and Morocco right now. Who, who are Croatia playing? No, Croatia Argentina. are playing Argentina. Yes, yeah. Croatia, Argentina. Um, take your time. I'm in no hurry to come back. <laughs> The Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. on SAFM. Good evening and welcome to the Tuesday edition of The Viewpoint on SAFM. My name is Dr. Ivor Chipkin and I'm your Tuesday takeover. Rather um, intimidating position. I'm, I've been on the other side of this mic as a guest occasionally and as a commentator. Now, uh, as a host, this is an all-new experience, so I hope you will bear with me. I think I'm hoping we have an interesting and exciting show. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm someone that works on institutions, uh, focused on trying to understand how institutions work, how administrations operate. I want to shift the conversation in the current situation with ANC conference coming up in in a few days, we've just had dramatic events at Parliament around, around, around the Parla Parla report. 
I'm finding that the conversation in South Africa overwhelmingly is focused on personalities. So that when we talk about politics, what we're really talking about is per our personalities. Uh, Sir Ramaphosa, uh, uh, Paul Mashatile, um, uh, Mr. Mukise, uh, alliances, who's corrupt, who's not corrupt, who's good, who's bad. What I think this obscures is several things. One is it obscures this contestation of political ideas, ideologies. What's happened to ideologies? What do people believe in? Do any of these people believe in things which we can discuss and debate? Um, I'm interested in institutions. All these people operate within institutions. The ANC is an institution. Uh, we're describing events which are happening within government. Government is full of institutions. I want to talk. I want to talk about that t tonight for the for the time which we have. We have a fantastic guest, uh, Professor Nur Niftokhuddin. Nifpunur is one of South Africa's foremost historians, a terrific historian. Works a lot on uh, histories of, of urban areas, Soweto and other areas, but he's also a formidable historian of, of, of the African National Congress. I want to bring him in to the conversation to discuss with us to what extent what we're seeing in the ANC, what we're looking forward to, to the ANC conference, to what extent does it speak to long-term historical patterns in the ANC, terms of contestation, of personalities, of ideologies, of other, other, other kinds of things? Or to what extent is something really new beginning to happen within, within the ANC? So I'm hoping that the producer and the others are going to be calling Nua and that we can, we can bring you in. So Nua, are you, apparently you're there and uh, Nua's on yes, hold. I am. Yes, I am. No, uh, thanks, Ivor, and good evening. Great. Uh, Nur, it's wonderful to have you. As I've said, uh, Professor Nur Niftokhuddin is the NRF Chair at Wits University in Local Histories and Present Realities, one of the fabulous historians. Um, Nur, you are obviously watching political events. You saw the events at, in Parliament today. We know mm. that the African National Congress is having its conference in, in, in the coming days. Are you seeing, as a historian of, of the organization and South Africa more, more broadly, is this, are these just old patterns repeating themselves, or is there something new which we should be looking out for within within the organisation? No, Ivor, thanks very much. Uh, I, I think it's a fabulous question, and you know I was able to catch your introduction uh, a few minutes ago uh, when you spoke about your own idealism and a kind of a moment during the transition. Um, now I, I was struck by that because I think that uh, that was an important moment, uh, you know, when there was quite intense contestation, uh, and we were at the cusp of a new future, and uh, you know, society was kind of replete with uh, debates about not only a critique of the uh, you know uh, unraveling of the ANC, of the of the apartheid edifice, but also the constitution of new ideas. And I'm starting there because um, I, I, I think that the, the second point that you've made uh, in your introduction now, that our preoccupation with individuals uh, has uh, prevented the public discourse by and large from uh, focusing on kind of underlying and more fundamental processes. Um, and uh, I, I would say in kind of direct response to your question that, um, you know, they're, they're always sort of new things, uh, but we can learn from the past uh, in terms of the kinds of contestation that uh, had unfolded previously within what we today call the ANC, but the broad Congress movement. Um, uh, but I, at the same time, I think that there are fundamental differences now, and in, in a certain sense that is, that is obvious because we live in a fundamentally different uh, political 
uh, you know, constitution compared to the kind of apartheid period. But I was, you know, uh, one of the issues that one has to confront uh, that uh, pervades the debates about the ANC is that even if people uh, tend to say, yes, ANC is a, a broad church, they've always been kind of competing ideas, one of the underlying tendencies um, that people uh, in kind of take for granted is that the ANC was always destined for power, that uh, from 1912, in a certain sense prior to 1912, uh, uh, you know, the ANC, it's a kind of teleology of the ANC's history, that it was kind of, there was a kind of a, a, a predetermined kind of uh, linear progression from its founding to being the kind of, uh, you know, preeminent liberation movement to power. And I think it's, it's, it's important to kind of question that because once one questions that, it allows for some uh, critical uh, engagement of what the ANC has been historically. And there's no single view, and that's, that's perhaps the first point I want to make. There's no single view about the ANC. The history of the ANC is highly contested. Uh, the ideas with the ANC, uh, about the ANC and by ANC people uh, have been highly contested. Uh, so let me just take kind of one moment. Right? Uh, a, a kind of a, a key moment in the evolution of the ANC is often the founding of the ANC Youth League, because that moment is regarded as the as the kind of an inflection moment when the young Turks, Mandela, uh, Apinda, etc., etc challenge an older, more conservative leadership and put the ANC in a path of sort of becoming a mass movement. Now, that is quite true, in fact. But what people often miss in that is that that entire process was highly contested, not only at the moment of the founding of the ANC, but also up to 1960 and even beyond. So let me just make two points and then kind of jump to how I think that might help us think about the present. The, the, the first is, it, it's, it wasn't as if the uh, people, that cohort of young leaders, Aran Mandela, APM Da, etc., came up with these sort of more radical ideas entirely on their own. In fact, what was fundamentally important is that it was a proliferation of popular struggles in locations and also in rural areas that pushed those young intellectuals into a more radical position. And the, and then the point there is that one needs to understand individuals in their context. That, of course, individuals matter in the way that they can shape history, but individuals are never abstracted from their context. And one needs to understand how the context uh, shapes uh, the ideas, the ideologies, the politics, the practice, and how those, in fact, influence the ANC itself. And that process, you know, often the defiance campaign is regarded as the high point of mass movements in the ANC. I would argue, in fact, that it was not. That the mass movements were more profound in the 1940s and post-1952 rather than 1952. So, you know, that may seem like a kind of obscure point to make, <laughs> but it is, in fact, to demonstrate that, uh, that context matters and that one needs to take seriously the kind of intense contestations that occurred. And, you know, some of the issues today, for example, is that there's a great demand for the, uh, 
for a new generation to take the leadership of the ANC because there's, there's, there's an, an assumption that a younger generation will infuse new radical ideas within an organization. Now, I mean, that is that could be true, but it's nothing uh, that predetermines that younger people will have answers, that they will even be more radical than an older generation. So one sees as, you know, one of the dynamics playing around the ANC Congress at the moment is the idea that younger people should now be given the opportunity to lead the ANC. And there's a kind of a, a move around people like Paul Mashatili, who's not young, by the way, but in terms of the ANC generation politics, is regarded as a younger generation. So, so I think that what one requires is, you know, to, is, is to kind of think about this history of the ANC in a slightly different way than, 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 than is conventionally understood, to see the ANC um, as having been an organization and then a movement that is highly contested. I would say, just in response then to, you know, to your first question, is um, it, in a sense, one could argue, and I'm being slightly provocative here uh, in, in, in the hope that uh, one can generate some debate. I would say that the ANC, in one sense, uh, is uh, uh, you know, returning to its, uh, to its roots. At its foundation, and for a long period, the ANC was about uh, constituting the idea of the nation around elite politics, around the position uh, and the promotion of a black elite. And I would say that the post-94 project was not only about that, but what one has seen uh, more clearly in the last 10, 15 years is that that particular project has become more predominant with all sorts of complications in the way that the ANC is a lever of power uh, through which accumulation via the state is, uh, is, is, yeah. is, is, uh, is, is kind of developed. So if one were to kind of think about what are some of the lessons that one could learn about the history of the ANC, I think there are many. I'm just emphasizing one. I want to challenge you. Yeah, I'd say it's that kind of... That, that kind of promotion of the black elite, I would say, is fundamentally important. So, I'm Dr. Ivy Chipkin. I'm your Tuesday Takeover guest this evening. Uh, join the conversation. Call 086-000-2032. Send uh, WhatsApp voice notes to 0614-104-107. My guest is renowned historian and vice professor Nua Niftahudin, and we're talking about the policy implications of the ANC's elective conference to, in 2020. 2000 in 20, 2022. So, Nua, one thing is interesting in the way you framed the framed framed the framed the, the development of the ANC in terms of a sort of a, an elite politics project, and it certainly resonates with some of the work that that I've been doing. But there's a fundamental transition which you haven't mentioned, um, and I want you to raise, and I think because it has huge consequences for our daily life, and that is that after 1994, the ANC enters as a party of government. Uh, it's no longer a party of, 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 uh, of resistance, of revolution, of rebellion. It becomes a party of government. And this seems to be a, a transition which is often missed in the academic literature. And what it means is that it, 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 it needs to be much more than just an, uh, an, an, a party of resistance, uh, of mobilizing, of activists, etc., but have actually become a party which is able to govern, a party of administration, a party mm. of policy. And this is really what I want to talk to you about. So... 
How do you see then that transition to government playing itself out in, in, in the current situation in terms of what you've been talking about, elite contestation? Yeah, sure. So, so, I mean, this is clearly, you know, perhaps one of the fundamental questions of our time. Um, and I, I, I would say that, uh, you know, uh, there are, of course, lessons from across our continent about how this process, process has evolved in the post-colonial situation. <clears throat> and one of the first points to make, and, and you'll remember these debates in the early, mid-1990s, uh, when various kind of critical scholars pointed to experiences elsewhere and kind of cautioned uh, the ANC leadership in terms of what it was, to, you know, uh, attempting to do. But at the same time, you know, even if one casts a very critical eye on that kind of period of transition and therefore where we are now, I think that we should be very, very careful in developing a critical analysis, not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, because there was a lot of experimentation. There was a lot of very kind of profoundly you know, radical ideas, uh, emancipatory ideas, kind of profound visions that were part of the debate. And it's, it's worthwhile reminding uh, ourselves about that kind of period of intense contestation because one of the things that we're seeing now is a retreat from contestation around ideas. Um, and so it's about you know, an, an individual, whether individuals are corrupt, whether faction in the ANC is corrupt. And I think that we need to remind ourselves of that profoundly important moment in the transition. So secondly, I, yeah. yeah. So, so secondly, I think that, you know, the issue of the ANC in government as opposed to the ANC as a liberation movement is, of course, profoundly important. And, and, and I would say that, uh, again, to, to, to kind of repeat potentially the main point I've been making is that the you know, there, there have been many, many contestations in the initial period and maybe up to kind of maybe 10 years ago. I think that there has been far less contestation around substantive ideas about, you know, the economy, the direction of the economy, where we stand in the world. Um, so the, the, the space for new ideas, for production of new ideas, has in fact narrowed. And in a sense, a, 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 a kind of, hegemonic project has settled with all sorts of problems and, 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 and challenges. And that project is about the development of an elite. And that is, a, I mean, that is, in fact, the project that is being pushed. And there are all sorts of problems associated with that. And I think the kind of idea of state capture can probably, in my mind anyway, be best explained by this fundamental project of, of, of elite development and using the state as a key lever for that, uh, for, for, for that kind of development. And so, you know, so I, I, I would say that that's, that's the kind of conversation. I know that people like yourself, people like Mark Swilling and others have, have, have contributed to this debate. Uh, but I, I, I would urge us to have more of that discussion and much less about whether we like this or that individual. So there, are, there, are, there, I'm in complete agreement with you around this kind of sort of endless fixation in South Africa with individuals. Um, I, I think we need to much, talk much more about politics, and that's really what we're trying to do tonight. So, but I want to ask you then. So, so Noah, then where, what's happened to the radical centre? If the ANC was sort of returning to its historic roots from the 1940s as a kind of elite project, uh, they were nonetheless right through the period. We now remember 1969, Morogoro, for example. There were these radical traditions within the ANC. 
So where are they today? Have they left the ANC, or are they are they are they represented by certain factions within the ANC? For example, uh, are you are you suggesting that uh, Jacob Zuma, that the, the RET faction, sort of is somehow the bearer of of some of that radicalism, or even Ramaphosa, for example, or has it moved altogether out of the ANC? Is it do we find it, for example, in the, in the EFF? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, so uh, let me let me just say, I don't think that the RED faction is radical at all. Um, I think it is a, 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 a conservative faction of, uh, uh, of, 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 uh, of elite development, uh, uh, who's, who's defined principally by the fact uh, that, it, uh, that it is desperate to get uh, its hands on the levers of state power uh, for accumulation purposes. I think that that is, for me, uh, in any event, the core explanation. I think, uh, you know, many of the positions that people who are put under the rubric of the RED faction, uh, you know, uh, one, one can explain their actions in, in that way. Um, I, I don't think that it's a single organization that embodies the kind of radical aspirations of a previous period. Um, I think that the elements within the ANC, within the trade unions, uh, uh, possibly within the EFF, although I think the EFF is is, is, a, is a more uh, you know populist organisation that is able to mobilise radical discourse, but in practice has proven to be uh, you, you know you know part of that process of uh, kind of elite development. Um, um, I think that there are far more radical ideas outside of the main political parties um, in civil society, in uh, parts of the trade unions. But I would say that one has to be quite frank and honest, and that is that by and large, uh, compared to the pre-94 period and possibly the, you know, the mid-20th century, the idea of what the left is and what the left should stand for, what its vision of emancipation might be, uh, is, is, is much uh, more opaque now than in those previous periods. So it is more dispersed, it's more fragmented, it lacks a core focus. Um, so when one, when one uses terms such as radical and left, um, I think that is a, uh, certainly it is the, the ANC is no longer the home of a new uh, kind of emancipatory project. You know what I find fascinating in this regard is, is how, so what you're talking about sort of the left project, is that key to the left project historically of course is the role of is the role of the state uh, the pro- provision of services by public administrations by uh, public ownership of goods and, and and the distribution of goods through public ownership etc what has always struck me as, as surprising especially in the south african context is the degree to which the left has not paid attention to institution building so that that which i've always understood as a central to the left agenda building institutions focusing on administration how to get how will services be provided concretely who do you need what kind of instruments uh, institutional design how do you arrange resources and financing these are i've always regarded as fundamentally left questions the left seems to have evacuated that terrain altogether and uh, bizarrely or interestingly enough it's largely the da a liberal party that has taken up taken up those those sorts of concerns so it almost seems to me to be provocative here is if the DA is to some extent the bearer of an element of, of the historic left agenda. What would you say to that? Yeah, well, I, 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 I agree and I profoundly disagree, <laughs> but not, not, not unexpectedly. Um, I think that what the DA is not interested in is, in fact, the public good. Um, and I think an, an efficient state is important, uh, but for the DA, an efficient state is more, uh, you know, uh, about... Uh, 
a kind of neoliberal project that is paring down the state and privatizing. Um, I mean, that's essentially where the ideology of the DA is located. Uh, but I, I, I agree with you that uh, um, the left has abandoned, by and large, engagement with the state. Um, and, uh, and I think that has to do with the nature of the transition, the fact that many people, particularly, you know, civil society, uh, you know, civic organizations, youth organizations, uh, you know, put their faith in a democratic state and abandoned, uh, can, you know, popular organization and mobilization that could offer a different view and a different kind of engagement with the state, particularly at the local level. Uh, you know, what, one can take any institution. Uh, if you take ESCOM as a parastatal, uh, you know, people are so fed up. I'm sitting in the dark at the moment. People are fed up uh, with, you know, with, uh, with ESCOM. And the answer, this is you know, part of the problem, not only about abandoning the state, but about the absence, I think, of ideology. So, uh, you know, so people are fed up with ESCOM, uh, and the only answer it appears uh, to many people is that uh, there should be privatization. That, the, that, that what is fundamentally wrong is the idea of a parastatal, the idea that a state uh, should be in charge of uh, you know, providing public goods. Uh, and I think that is a fundamentally important discussion to have, uh, because in the case of ESCOM, I would argue that what one needs uh, is, in fact, you know, you know, uh, continued state control for the public good. And that's the second part that is, that is crucially important. Making that argument is not an argument uh, in favor of what is currently wrong with the state and how the, the current state and government has messed up ESCOM. It's about reimagining the state, reimagining what one needs in order to provide public goods such as water, electricity, clean air and the like. And I agree with you, um, one can't only make demands in the abstract uh, and not engage and, 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 and build the kinds of institutions, which may be state institutions, but they may also be popular organizations, civic organizations like we had in the 1980s. Not to romanticize those, because they had all sorts of challenges and problems that can, in fact, uh, not only be uh, uh, you know, oppositions to the state, but engage the state, create local organizations that can reinforce what is good in order to produce or to provide public goods. So, no, of course, now, now you're speaking my language. This is what I think is absolutely fundamental, which is why I think, you know, questions of administration, of building institutions, institutional design, these are the key political questions. And yet, I think, bizarrely, they're questions which have largely been marginalized in South African public debate. And that's why I'm very pleased to be uh, here on the Tuesday Takeover this evening as the guest uh, in conversation with you, precisely that we can start bringing these questions of policy and of institutions into, into the public domain. It seems that we have uh, several callers and people sending in, in, in voice notes. So should we move over to, to some of those? Um, yeah. Is this Andile from Pretoria? Hi, uh, good evening, Professor. It's Andile. Andile, hi. Please go ahead. Andile? Uh, we seem to have lost Andile. Um, but again, these questions of sort of administration, of building institutions is absolutely key. I mean, in my experience, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a public administration nerd. What is extraordinary about the public administration literature is the degree to which it is so profoundly skeptical of democratic governments, uh, democrat, the ability of democratic governments to build institutions. One of the great achievements of the 1990s in the ANC government is precisely we might disagree with their politics. I know the National Treasury comes under tremendous, uh, gets a lot of flack uh, for its neoliberalism, but it's an extraordinary institutional achievement of building this institution that is able to sort of control the finances of the, of, of, of the state. The same with the African Re Revenue Services. These are 
institutional, quite extraordinary achievements of, 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 sta of state building. Um, it's a pity that we lost Andy Lev. We've got several others. I'm being told to go to an ad ad advert break now, so we will be back with you in, uh, in, uh, in a matter of seconds. SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide. Leading the conversation. Songhez Omapete on SAFM. Great, we're back online. Andile from Pretoria is back with us. Andile, please go ahead. Hi, hi, Dr. Chepkin. I, I was just saying that I normally read your articles a lot on Mail and Guardian. I really like your, your analysis of everything. I, I just wonder if your listenership, your readership, if you have any comment about them, because you, you, Mr. Crotter, your analysis is, is quite, is quite uh, liberal and uh, accepting of people's views and people's races and people's uh, attitudes. But your readership is quite something else. But that's not where I'm coming to. Uh, I used to be a teacher before. I normally told my kids that the ANC is a victim of its success. I'd like your comment on this one. If you look at the National Party government and the electrification of South Africa, it was about 12%. 12% of South Africa. I've, uh, sorry, I think I've, I've lost the end of that question, but, I, but, but, but some great questions about readership. I'm, I'm not quite sure who, who reads me, so I'm very pleased to hear that Andila is reading me. I'm not sure that there are many more people beyond Andila that, that, that read, read my material. Um, the question is raised around the ANC being a victim of its own success. I This is something which is very close to my heart. Uh, it's something which I've been and have continued to write a lot about. Um, I made a submission to the, to the Zonda Commission, for example, where I tried to understand uh, state capture in terms of elite contestation. And one of the arguments I made, which speaks very much to, to, to Andile's question, was that the argument I made was that in the, during the transition and the, during the 1990s, the ANC, if you like, took on the role as the, as the, as the body of the nation, suffering all the wounds and, uh, and suffering all the wounds and, and, and arrows of, 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 of South Africa's history, that it would absorb into itself and somehow resolve, so that it absorbed all the old all, all elites into South Africa, uh, it, all the homeland elites joined the ANC and absorbed into it. It was an extreme extremely open and, and tolerant organization in terms of who it admitted. Those huge ANC uh, membership drives of, of the 1990s, for example, drew in literally tens of thousands of former homeland nurses, uh, teachers, um, policemen, uh, homeland officials. These were, this was the, the, the sort of uh, the heart of, 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 of the ANC's membership, which in, into the 2000s. What I argued was, so that project of absorbing all the contradictions and tensions of South African society into its own into its own body, and somehow trying to manage it through its own internal processes, I think gave us the first a decade of, 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 of quite profound political stability in the country, a necessary political stability. But what I argued to the Zonda Commission was that from around 2008, 2009, and this is what I argued Polokwane was, the ANC was unable to manage that tension and that contestation in, in, within its own ranks through its own processes. And what Polokwane represented ultimately was this elite contestation breaking out of the bounds of the ANC um, and into broader society. And I think that's very much how, how I understand the current contestation in the ANC, but broadly... 
the 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 profoundly disturbing and chaotic character of, of society today that there's no organization there's no place certainly not the ANC any longer that is able to manage the extraordinary levels of violence and contestation and frustration within South African South African society so that idea of 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 um, Andiles that uh, the, the ANC uh, is a victim of its own success. I, I, I'm quite sympathetic to, to that idea. Um, I see we have some voice notes. Do we want, do we want to play them? Um, great. I'm getting positive signs My from the producers. My question to the professor is um, to ask how did the national government fund their projects and the party itself? Because I certainly do recall that somebody saying that um, the person working in provincial government of the Western Cape, being a director, was also a board member of um, companies that um, had tenders within the department. So um, isn't it that the ANC just learned how to do it? Uh, good afternoon, SAFM listeners. It's Young and Rosbank in Cape Town. Prof, I just um, have um, one question to say um what is your take um in this current um anc leadership that seem to be you know not tolerant of different um views you know within the organization i mean like you said you've you've, you've studied the anc from i don't know when and we were an organization that um always you know debated um matters but now we find ourselves in a situation whereby um, once you have a different view, um, you, you, you are simply labeled as um, those you know, people who, who want to continue with corruption within the ANC. Like, what is your view that um, corruption should not be used to suppress um, views within the organization? Thank you. Both great questions. And Nua, please uh, jump in when you when you want to. Sure. Um, I'm uh, Dr. Ivy Chipkin, and I'm your Tuesday takeover guest this evening. So join the conversation on 086-000-2032 or send WhatsApp voice notes to 0614-104-107. I mean, the question around around the National Party, I think, is a very interesting one and a very, a very, very important one. There's a kind of, uh, there's a mythology that somehow the ANC, that the, 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 during the apartheid period, the, the National Party was certainly evil, uh, definitely evil, but somehow, bizarrely enough, there was this idea that it was more or less competent. Well, what we know from the historical record, and Noah, you please jump in here, is that we know that from the 1980s, especially from the 1980s, uh, the National Party goes into an, in a mode of extreme uh, uh, resistance, uh, counter-revolution. Uh, the total onslaught days introduces the national security management system under, under P.W. Boerter. And what it does during that period, very, very interestingly enough, it subverts the historical administrative hierarchies of, of, of the apartheid era public service. So what you start seeing for the very first time, directors and heads of department are suddenly now spies and spooks and uh, police agents and generals are becoming entering the administration. And it's during that period in the early 1980s and from then on that corruption goes absolutely ballistic in the, in, 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 in the estate. 
So I think there is something to be said around those continuities of corruption from the mid 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 uh, mid nineteen eighties in, 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 during the apartheid period into the transition, which set the basis, if you like, for some of the for some of the for some of the post apartheid corruption. I think we shouldn't exaggerate that continuity, um, but nonetheless, I think it's a, it's a, it's an important area to, to to focus on. I don't know if Noah, if you've got any ideas in that regard. Yeah, so I, I, I agree I, uh, with the kind of core point you make, uh, and as well as the caution that you raise uh, around continuities, uh, because we we do operate, uh, you know, with the understanding that uh, 1994 represented a rupture with the past, and that is largely true. Uh, but you mentioned earlier uh, about the incorporation of homeland structures, uh, individuals, uh, you know, whole scale you know, entities, uh, both business and, 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 and administrative into the new government. And that's an important element of continuity, of course, within, you know, an entirely, you know, fundamentally different constitutional arrangement. But it'd be worthwhile to, uh, I think the question is, is, is profoundly important because it, it asks us to think about the transition uh, more critically. Uh, to think about, you know, what was the character, the nature, what were the kind of concrete elements in that transition? Uh, because we focus on the protested talks and the creation of a constitutional order, uh, but give very little attention to the to what was happening in different regions, particularly where the homelands existed. Mm-hmm. If I could just say very briefly on the second question about uh, about tolerance of divergent views, um, and. Uh, I would say that context matters. It is it is true now that there is much less tolerance of divergent views, um, and certainly in in a period of uh, you know the anti-apartheid struggle where you know uh, emancipatory ideas were predominant, there was far more creativity, far more openness, um, and and tolerance of different ideas. But we must never lose sight of the fact that uh, dissident, dissident views were, all, were, were also silenced within the ANC and between the ANC and, you know, for example, you know, black consciousness. Uh, there was violence between, you know, uh, you know, in certain parts of the country, uh, between the ANC and and, uh, and Azabo. And within the ANC, you know, the silencing of kind of radical views uh, for people, you know, for example, of people who criticized the Communist Party from a Marxist perspective, they were silenced. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, it, you know, more, uh, more broadly, there was certainly, I would say, more more tolerance of different ideas than we have now. Great, thank you, thank you, Bruno. It's been a, it's been a great uh, chatting to you. I think we're coming to the end of this conversation. Um, I do think that's worth thinking around. So when you're watching the NC conference coming up, and generally our parliamentary situation. It's worth asking questions around what are the policy implications of what's going to happen in, in the ANC conference? Who believes in what? Uh, what potential implications does it have for anti-corruption, for state building, etc.? Um, I'm going to move over to the news now. Thank you very much for having me for, for so long. The Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. On the viewpoint. That was Dr. Ivor Chipkin. Ivor, tell me how that experience was because now, just off air, you have agreed to stay on until 20. 20- 
30 as we engage a follow-up conversation, not so much about what you were talking about in the first hour, follow-up in the sense that there are many aspects of the previous conversation that will dovetail with this one with Mr. Nixon Katembo, African Affairs Analyst and Executive Producer, Channel Africa, when we're engaging the progress, if any, that has been made on the continent and in global politics, generally speaking, when we're talking about corruption. So we're going to pivot into that conversation. But let's just reflect on the previous hour's discussions, because I think essentially we are talking about, I mean, if we are to sort of deduce to three or four items, what we learned from apartheid, and it's a disintegration, what we were seized with as the reality on the ground in the days of CODESA and the multi-party negotiating forum, and the design of the democratic society that we wanted, and the reality that has become of what would have been wanted. And that there's a case that can be said of each, you know, and we can go to town for a long time about the de- why apartheid and how apartheid eventually came down what each of the negotiators were seized with in CODESA, what was negotiable for them, in in other words, their mandate and what they wanted to achieve and what was absolutely off the cards, the preparedness of the comrades themselves at that negotiating table, whether there was just sufficient, I wouldn't use the word skill, but just sufficient knowledge of the core issues of how to establish a country, to run a country, and, 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 and what becomes of being in government as opposed to waging a war, waging a struggle, fundamentally different issues. And then, of course, you do the design of the statute, I mean, of the state, and interim constitution becomes final constitution, the government of national unity, the sunset clauses. And then once the euphoria to an extent dies down because you're no longer riding the crest of being that party that has delivered this constitution, but the party that has to deliver the promise of the Constitution and now 27, 28 years on, perhaps there were a lot of blind spots. Also, just a lot of own goals, to use metaphors from football. How would you summarize then, because we don't have a lot of time, in a response to you, you've got a minute on national radio, how would you summarize South Africa 27 years in Fortunately, we're talking because we have had only one political party. So it would be a compliment or an indictment or whatever to the ANC. Well, thank you. The first thing I want to say is thank you for asking me to stay on. Cause, and I, I'm, I'm assuming that that is a sign of uh, that uh, the, the, the initial show went, went, went well. So thank you. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're asking really, really interesting questions. I mean... You know, in the work that I was doing, what what struck me and I was compl- surprised by, that the first the first ANC document on government itself, uh, not sort of these broad slogans around transformation, etc. The first like, concrete document about how they're going to rebuild the the the, the public service, ready for example. To yeah, ready. no, slightly before before that, 1990. It's a document written by Patrick Fitzgerald. It's written from in Excel in, in Lusaka. It's the first document, really, which is starting to deal with with questions of public service, administrative questions. Too late. So it's incredibly late. They're not thinking about this. Now, it's not because they're somehow absent-minded. It's because there are other more pressing questions. I mean, Granted. I think we... I think we underestimate the degree to which this is a, the transition, apart from a very small coterie of, of people right in the, in the sort of inner circle, how, how, to what extent that the transition took people by surprise. Um, I mean, I remember being watching the, the unbanning of the ANC on 
the Fred, that famous February the second speech by Frederick uh, by by um, the, the clerk. clerk. Yeah, you know, it took us by complete complete surprise. I think it took most people by surprise. So, the transition. You know, it had been building and building and building, but, it, you know, there was a strong sense they could have fought this out for, for, for a lot longer. So I, don't, I think there was a lack of preparedness around it. And one of the areas which, where the ANC hadn't been thinking was around, around institutional questions. And yet, some of the achievements in the 1990s, I think, are just remarkable. I mean, I really think Big we time. I mean, time. I think the building of National Treasury, the integration of the Bantustans, SARS, those sorts of things are extraordinary, extraordinary achievements. Having a government... Post the night, first of all, having the 1994 elections on its own was an achievement. Negotiating, I mean, I don't think there has been a post conflict society anywhere in recent memory that has had the kind of transition that South Africa had, CODESA, MNPF. I haven't seen one, unless I'm woefully out of work with my politics, but no country has engaged at that level between so called enemy and struggle. Um, and, and those waging the struggle, representing the multitude of interests, and then settling on a constitution of the kind that has their claim, ours has, and then setting up the institutions in particular, for instance, your constitutional courts, your Chapter 9 institutions, very crucial, checks and balances within this fragmentation and in this configuration, rather, of the state. Those were big wins. So, Ngezo, think about what's happening in South Africa. It's the 1990s. Think of the other transitions that are happening. Uh, Yugoslavia, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Soviet Union. What's happening there? Yugoslavia uh, breaks up into the most astonishing and terrible civil war. Um, the Soviet Union disintegrates. Four um, years later, you've got Rwanda. You've got Rwanda f a few years later, absolutely. So, I mean, the South African transition is happening at an incredibly important historical moment where a whole range of transitions. The South African transition, by those standards, is an astonishing success. I mean, uh, my wife is my wife is from is from is, is Serbian, who lived through the civil war and the and the breakup of Yugoslavia. You know, the states that emerge after the breakup of Yugoslavia, these are, you know, Croatia's playing tonight. These are these are mm. these are. Um, I won't share my partisan views on, on on the soccer at the moment. Although I can honestly say that that I'm not supporting uh, that I'm supporting Argentina in this particular match. Why are you not supporting Croatia? Well, I think the states that emerge from the breakup of Yugoslavia are not are not great states. Okay, story for another day. For another twenty-one fifteen. Let's conclude what was then the hashtag Tuesday takeover, but because of his prowess on air and his comfort in dealing with his issues, of course he does because he has a PhD and deals in public administration and public policy issues, I have requested that he please stay on. So after the break, it's Ivor Chipkin, Songa Zomabeka, in conversation with Nixon Katembo, African Affairs Analyst and Executive Producer at Channel Africa. The question is, or the engagement is, recognizing progress in the fight against corruption a perspective on Africa and be very sure when we're talking about corruption on the continent, there are many issues, neo-imperial issues, neo-colonial issues that have to be incorporated in that conversation. I would certainly appreciate that with you in conversation with us after the break.